The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. Hebrews chapter number 8 for our scripture reading this morning. We're going to be in verse number 8. The Bible says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the days when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continue not in my covenant, and, re- I re- <clears throat> and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. Verse number 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Now, as you study out the book of Romans, you're going to see that everyone that puts their faith and trust of Christ is grafted into the people of God called Israel. So this isn't talking about strictly the nation of Israel. This is talking about all of us who have placed our faith and trust in Christ. For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind, and I will write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. Let's pray, and then pastor's going to come and bring the first message of our new series, The New Covenant. Thank you so much for joining us for our first sermon in this new series, The New Covenant. And uh, so we're excited about diving into this today, and uh, hopefully we're ready to go. And I I just want to say this from the outset, you're here for the very first sermon in this five-week series. And so as of this moment right here, right now, you have perfect attendance, all right? So let me just say congratulations to you on that, and uh, we'll see how many of us can kind of uh, keep that going throughout this particular series. Let me give a couple of caveats as we begin this morning. Number one, I want to say from the outset today that some of the sermons in this particular series will probably create more questions uh, than they will answers uh, right away, all right? And so uh, we're going to just kind of take some time here to be patiently moving through this. And, and that's really why instead of just a singular sermon uh, to tackle this subject, we thought we would make it an entire series Uh, Because there's so much to wrestle through, uh, there's so much to unpack, and to some degree it's going to get a little bit academic, uh, and so you're really going to want to put on your thinking caps a little bit as we wade through a lot of just kind of Old Testament theology and how that ties into New Testament theology and what we're referring to and what the scriptures refer to as the New Covenant, all right? Uh, As I said a moment ago, this sermon is going to be a lot more academic uh, than usual, but I really feel like this is important to lay the proper foundation uh, for what's to come. Some of you will remember last year when we were preaching through the book of Ephesians, how I started the series just basically sharing with you a little bit about the culture of Ephesus, uh, some of their backgrounds and customs, and uh, really just tried to lay somewhat of a historical foundation so that when we began moving through that passage of the Bible, it would make more sense contextually. And so we're going to do a little bit of that here even today. Uh, Much of this series is going to come through the book of Hebrews, Uh, Because it is in the book of Hebrews that the author is really trying to help the nation of Israel understand that things have changed. All right, the way things were under the Mosaic law, uh, under the time of Moses, is not the way things were going to stay. And so the entire book of Hebrews is really written to help the Jews understand that, hey, 
things are changing, stuff's going to be different, and uh, so we're going to spend a lot of time in Hebrews ourselves, as well as a little bit in Galatians, because the Apostle Paul does the same thing as well. So let me just do this as we're moving through this. We're calling this Clarifying the Covenant Part 1. I really don't know how far we're going to get into this particular message here today, and so if it feels disjointed, it's kind of going to be that way. There's just too much information, as much as I would like to stay here for five hours and kind of move through all of this. uh, I realize some of you guys have lunch plans, and so I'm going to try to be as gracious as possible, and we're going to break this up into a whole lot of different pieces here today. So just to give you an idea of what we're looking at for the entire series, uh, really the big idea, not just for this sermon, but for the series as a whole is simply this. The way you interpret God's love for you will deeply influence the way you love him. And this is big, and this is foundational, and this is really the backbone as to why we're presenting this series. Because the way in which you interpret, the way you understand how it is that God loves you will have deep, deep, deep implications on your ability to love God back. And isn't that our purpose in life? To love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. We want to be a people here at Ambassador that love God deeply. We want to be a people that love God richly because we're of the persuasion that our behaviors and our actions flow out of a deep love for God. And so if we want to love God properly, it really starts with understanding and having a proper interpretation of how God loves you. There are people in our world today, some even Christians, and they believe that God loves them conditionally. That is, if I do this and if I do that, God loves me. And if I do this and I do those things, then God might even love me a little bit more. And if I do these things and those things and all these things, then, then, then God really will like me a whole lot. He'll love me a whole lot. And yet as you study the new covenant, we're going to discover together that this is not how God's love actually works. And so the theme for this series is the way you interpret God's love for you will have huge influence on the way you love him. Uh, We could say it this way. If you fail to experience God's deep love for you, you'll fail to love God deeply. It really starts with an understanding of how God loves you. And that's what the new covenant is all about. It totally flips on its head the paradigm of how God loves us who are in Christ. 1 John chapter number 4, verse 19, you're familiar with this passage. The Bible says, we love him because, do you guys remember the rest of this verse? Because why? Because he first loved us. I want to say this, that our love for God is entirely responsive. Now think about this for a moment. Our love, our ability to adore and appreciate and show compassion on God is entirely responsive to our ability to experience and to enjoy his love for us. Uh, Only to the degree we understand, only to the degree that we, we really experience, 
only to the degree that we truly enjoy God's love for us will we be able to experience and enjoy, uh, enjoy God in return and love God in return. You want to love God deeply? Then you have to experience God's love deeply. You want to you wanna God, love God richly and, and passionately? Then you have to experience and enjoy God's love richly and passionately. There are Christians running all over the world that are trying to wring out a love for God out of their soul. They're trying to wring out the right behaviors toward God. They're trying to wring out of their lives a right attitude toward God. And what they fail to understand is love is reflexive love is responsive i should say our ability to love is totally based on our ability to experience to absorb and to enjoy the love that god has first given to us and so the question is this how are you doing at enjoying god's love for you how are you doing at deeply experiencing God's love for you. Do you find yourself in awe and in wonder of God's deep passion for your soul? Or is your Christian life basically made up of you trying to love God and you trying to obey God and you try to do this and that for God? And you maybe, have you maybe forgotten that the foundation of loving God and serving God and obeying God is basking and abiding deeply in the love, the unconditional, unwavering passion that God has for you. This really is the big idea of this particular series. And I will say this. Without a proper covenant understanding of God's love, without a proper covenant understanding of a, of a proper covenant theology, as we're going to dive into, you really can't truly understand the manner in which God loves you. It takes a new covenant understanding of the word of God, a new covenant theology of scriptures to really be able to grasp just how much God actually loves you. So that's the theme. That's why we're going to dive into this. And uh, we're going to do our very best just to begin to march through week by week this idea of the new covenant. Well, as we get going, a few years ago, an agnostic, all right? Most of you would be familiar with what an agnostic is. This is somebody who does not believe necessarily uh, in the fact that, you know, God is personal and God is relevant. They just have kind of a vague, abstract idea of God. There was an agnostic by the name of A.J. Jacobs. He wrote a New York Times bestseller book. It was really an anti-Christian book at its core that he mockingly titled The Year of Living Biblically. How many of you heard about this when it came out a couple of years ago? Anybody uh, came across this book? And so A.J. Jacobs wrote this book and in kind of an attempt to mock and belittle Christianity, uh, he wrote this book called uh, the My Year of Living Biblically. He subtitled it, One Man's Humble Quest to Follow the Bible as Literally as Possible. And so, for an entire year, 12 months, 52 weeks, 
He went through Genesis to Revelation, looked for every particular command that he could find, and then, to the best of his ability, he went and set himself out to live every single one, all right? And he followed, to the best of his ability, the famous rules, some of the ones that uh, we would be very familiar with, such as uh, the Ten Commandments, all right? Most of us would be familiar with this one or these. And so, for 12 months, he took those Ten Commandments, and he set to, you know, live them out. Uh, Of course, he also took the Golden Rule, and uh, those passages that spoke of that, and to the best of his ability, he sought to live out as as an agnostic, not somebody who believed in Christ, uh, a secularist, went out to live in this way. Uh, He did the best he could to follow such rules as being honest and being truthful and living with integrity and such and so forth. But he also followed what he personally called, and often, what he, what he personally called, often ignored commands in the Bible. This is how, this is in his words, how he phrased it as a secularist. Uh, you said, what, what are those commands? Well, according to Deuteronomy 22, uh, he saw that you weren't supposed to wear clothes with mixed fabrics. So, for an entire year, he went and not, didn't wear one item of clothing that had mixed fabrics in them. Uh, then, according to what he saw in Leviticus chapter number 19, where it says a man's not to shave his beard, uh, he decided that he would not shave his beard for an entire year. And so, uh, Pastor Nick's around here somewhere, we heard last week, that he's not shaving his beard. So, I don't know if he's on some experiment or uh, what's going on, and uh, he's, he told us he's letting his beard grow out. Uh, only lesser known, I, I, I personally kind of always uh, struggled to, to grow a beard myself. I also have not shaved for this entire year, and uh, I feel like it's filling in quite well, all right? And so we're, we're kind of all on this journey here a little bit together, but uh, A.J. Jacobs did that uh, along with Leviticus 19. He did not want to plant different types of seeds in a single garden. So in his backyard garden, he was sure not to mix the seeds, not wanting to disobey what he perceived in Leviticus number 19 as a command from God. He even went as far as throwing rocks at people who demonstrated certain sinful behaviors. Uh, here he went down to Manhattan's Times Square, took rocks, and whenever he saw somebody that he felt was sinning against some covenant, he took a rock, and according to what he saw in scriptures, began literally to throw them at these people. They, of course, did not appreciate having rocks thrown at them as they were walking down uh, Times Square. But in his mind, he wanted to live biblically, and that was his attempt to do exactly that. The book is purposefully irreverent, it is purposely sacrilegious, and at times it's downright blasphemous. I do not recommend you reading it, all right? I just, for whatever that's worth, all right? I'm just throwing this out here as an illustration to help you kind of uh, wrap your head around some things. He accuses Christians in his book of calling themselves biblicists and then simply picking and choosing which of the rules they will follow and which of the rules in the Bible they choose not to follow. And so his attempt in this book is to basically say all Christians are hypocrites. That was his big goal, to say they're a bunch of Pharisees, they're a bunch of hypocrites. Uh, they just pick, they just choose, they go to the, this book and they'll say, we'll do this. But in that very same book, they'll ignore the next verse. 
And they'll go to one passage and they'll say, we do do this, and, and ignore two verses later and they'll not do this. And, and his entire attempt in writing the book was to really undermine uh, this idea that Christians really at their core are just hypocrite, pharisaical individuals. He says... Uh, after kind of moving through all this and, and doing this, he says, Thank God, Bible-believing Christians don't take the good book as seriously as they claim to. That's how he ends it. Now, obviously, Mr. Jacob's perspective is, grossly, is a grossly extreme misinterpretation of Scripture. But could you even tell me why? See, Here's what's sad, is as we're more and more becoming secularized as a society, our churches are becoming more and more secularized. To the degree that we really don't know why we believe what we believe. We don't know why we do what we do. Why don't we follow those laws in Leviticus? Why are there other ones in Leviticus we do follow? Why is that? So for many Christians, we just put our head in the sand and pretend that it doesn't exist. Other Christians and Bible teachers attempt to somehow reconcile this in some weird fashion that any amount of logic would be able to see makes zero sense whatsoever. So why did I bring this up? Why even talk about it? Why even throw this out? And here's why. Because when A.J. says that many Christians just pick and choose which commands they want to obey, I'm going to say this, I kind of agree with him. If you ask the average Christian why they obey some passage, ignore others, they really could not tell you why. They do not have a theological framework that gives them answers to those type of questions. And so as parents, because we can't answer these type of questions, our kids think we're ignorant. Our teens think we're stupid. They look at this book and find it irrelevant. What's the point of it all together? It's just a bunch of contradictions. It just has a bunch of fallacies in it. Christians just pick and choose what they want to do and believe anyways. So why can't I just pick and choose what I want to do and what I want to be? And to a lesser degree, as a pastor, I see many Christians also misinterpreting the Bible honestly in much the same way that I saw as I was reading this book. Now, granted, to a smaller degree, I will grant you. They don't go to quite the extreme. There hasn't been an occasion where I've been walking through the mall there at Fashion Fair and seen one of you throwing rocks at people who you appeared to be sinning in a particular manner. All right, so maybe, maybe we're not as extreme as Mr. Jacobs was. But our thought process is actually much the same, and that's what scares me. The way we perceive these passages follow much the same paradigm, much the same perspective, and all that does is it leaves us in a place where we think, forget all this, I'm done with it, it's confusing, it's contradictory, it doesn't make any sense, and so we see people leaving the faith in droves, or on the other hand, uh, we get these Bible teachers that are like speaking out of both sides of their mouths, and they're kind of, they're contradictory in their teachings, and they say things that literally like don't even make sense, and so we find Christians like at one of these two extremes, and and. So much of this comes back to the fact 
that our modern-day Christians do not have a proper understanding of the Old Covenant with Israel and the New Covenant of grace with those who are in Christ. It is their lack of theological understanding about what God teaches regarding the New Covenant, how he prophesied the New Covenant for hundreds of years, He described what this new covenant would look like. Jesus validated that when this new covenant had come, this is what it would be. And so we as believers, if we're going to answer the hard questions that society is throwing at us, we have to come to a place where we are accurately and we are contextually interpreting the scriptures properly. Because so often we take the scriptures out of context, we make the scriptures say something that they don't actually say. We don't understand what the, what the Bible actually means. So to say it this way, there's a lot of believers and they believe what the Bible says. But since they don't get the proper context, they don't actually understand what the Bible actually means. Do you see the difference? They know what the Bible says. But because they're not interpreting it properly, they have no clue as to what it actually means. And that's why this particular series that we're going to be moving through is so vitally important. Because we're not just going to talk about what the Bible says. We're going to compare Scripture with Scripture. You know, the Bible is of no private interpretation. We're going to use context the whole of Scripture to give us a lens by which we interpret the specifics of Scripture so that we get beyond just knowing what the Bible says and we come to a place where we know what it actually means. So we don't end up to some some Christianized version of Mr. Jacobs. You say, how does this happen? How does this take place? It takes place because of the same type of thinking that got A.J. Jacobs doing what he did. He takes a whole lot, and we do as well, these things that I just mentioned. You say, where do these beliefs come from? We take a whole lot of passages in the Old Testament, Old Covenant, that was given directly to the people and nation of Israel. We extract passages that were spoken to Israel and we adopt them upon ourselves. Then we go to the New Covenant, what some will talk, we'll unpack this later, the New Testament. We'll find one or two verses, pull them out of context, and between all these passages under the Old Covenant and one or two misinterpreted passages under the New Covenant, and we come to a position where all of a sudden we get this mixed bag of theological confusion. Where does it come from? It comes from the same place that Mr. Jacobs came from. He didn't understand Old Covenant to the nation of Israel and New Covenant to those who are grafted into Christ. This 
is massive to your foundational theological understanding of the scriptures. This is big. This is huge. If we continue this way, we'll interpret so much of the scripture and we'll find it to be highly contradictory, filled with double talk, with incongruencies and contradictions to the point that some of us will get to the place where we throw up our hands and like, I don't even know if I can believe this stuff after all. This is crazy. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, see, I went to this church and they're pulling stuff here and pulling, they just, it's like, and, and there, there was no logical, theological, structural progression in interpreting these texts. Um, we talked about this, so let me just kind of unpack. We're just, we're really laying a foundation here today. This is just all introduction. Hermeneutics, we've talked about this a couple of years ago. Hermeneutics is a phrase that I learned in seminary. It simply speaks, if you want to jot it down, it is the philosophy and methodology to proper Bible interpretation. Hermeneutics. A, the philosophy and methodology to proper Bible interpretation. So a proper hermeneutic. There is, there is proper hermeneutics and improper hermeneutics. There are individuals, as they move through the Bible, they interpret it improperly. <laughs> It happens all the time. How many of you are familiar with a cult that'll use a Bible verse? Okay? They're using an improper hermeneutic to find interpretation from the scriptures. It happens all the time. A proper hermeneutic or a proper biblical interpretation, that is where we compare scripture with scripture, getting the proper context, under the, understanding the right foundation. Who is this speaking to specifically? What is the cultural context that would help us to understand what is being said to people's ears 2,000 years ago? Because we put on these lenses, we've got our cultural lenses, we've got cultural perspective that skews all the information that comes into our world. And so a proper hermeneutic, a proper biblical interpretation, one that gets proper context will help us to understand not just what the Bible says, which is good, but more importantly, what the Bible actually means. And that is vital. Or else you're going to be the type of Christian, you can literally make the Bible say anything you want the Bible to say. <laughs> I heard the story one time about a guy who was trying to figure out what to do with his life. And, and, uh, and uh, he was flipping the scriptures and he opened up the Bible real quick and set it down. And he, he flopped his Bible down and he said, I'm going to do whatever the Bible tells me to do. He took his finger, pointed it in the scripture right there. He looked at it for a second and it said, Judas went and hung himself. He said, no, I can't do that. That won't work. So, you know, try this again. He took the Bible. And he, he opened it again. He, fl- he flipped it. He, he put his finger down and he read the verse. Go and do ye likewise. <laughs> That's ridiculous. It's sad to say that is how a lot of Christians structurally maneuver their biblical interpretation. Say this, you do that, you can basically make the Bible say anything you want it to say. And a lot of people do. It is so vital if we're going to be people of the book to not just say, What does the Bible say? But we need to have a strong hermeneutical approach, a contextual approach to biblical interpretation. The first initial interpretation might not always be the right interpretation. 
and this is important, if we're going to be a Bible-believing church, we've got to understand how to navigate the Word of God properly. And one of the biggest places of confusion when it comes to interpreting the Bible properly is many Christians do not have a theological understanding, a structural paradigm for what the old covenant was, who it was to, what its purpose was, is it still relevant, did it stop, has it continued, and the new covenant, when did it begin, how long does it continue, what is its purpose, how is it accomplished, and once you understand and you have a proper theological perspective of new covenant, old covenant theology, you are positioning yourself to better be able to study to show yourself approved unto God, one who can rightly, here's the word, divide the word of truth. This is important, we're going to come back to that. That we know how to divide this word of truth. I'm going to do this because of time. We're going to give a quick, quick overview. I'm going to talk a little bit of what we're going to hit. Next week, we're going to dive in, and we're going to just basically talk about what is a covenant. It is not a word that we use often. In fact, we in modern America don't even truly have a category that speaks the same language as this deep, ancient word covenant has in the scriptures. And so we're going to spend some time just trying to get our heads around what is a covenant? It's not really like anything you and I experience a whole lot of in our modern secular society. So we're going to unpack what is, what is. We're going to define the essence of a covenant here in a bed, and we're going we're to do a little bit of that. Then the following week, we're going to take some time, and we're going to start to wrestle through and unpack what exactly the old covenant was. We say these words, but what is it? What was the purpose of the Old Covenant? When did the Old Covenant start? When was it completed? What was its purpose? And even more importantly, what was its limitations? Because that's going to be key. What is it that the Old Covenant was given us to do? What was it given us to do? What was its purpose? But what could it not do? And why was a new covenant needed? Then the following week, we're going to look at that new covenant. We're going to talk a little bit about what that new covenant is. We're going to unpack a little bit of what was its purpose. When did it start? Has it ended? And then we're going to take the following weeks and we're going to unpack a little bit on this idea of the effects of understanding a covenantal theology. So when we have this, how do we deal then with spiritual maturity under the new covenant? If God doesn't punish, then, then what are consequences? There is consequences in our natural world. You can believe in Jesus, but if you jump off a high-rise high, high skyscraper with no parachute, the natural laws of gravity are going to kill you, even if you believe in Jesus. <laughs> and so where do consequences play into this whole understanding are there consequences in life? Absolutely. But are they spiritual or are they natural? It's important to understand the difference. We're going to unpack ideas and ramifications to 
forgiveness and what does that mean in these categories and my prayer is that the end of these few weeks we will have a fresh perspective of who Jesus Christ truly was what did he do I'm telling you this there are a few of these services and the theology though it's going to be deep and we're going to have to wrestle through it a little while is literally going to blow your mind with the extent that your heavenly father, God, went to to purchase your salvation. It's powerful, it's big, and it is vital to a proper interpretation of Scripture, both Old Testament and New. So, as we wrap up this basic introduction, all right, The way you interpret God's love for you will influence the way you love him. We said that at the beginning of the service. We said this, a misinformed definition of God's love for you. If if you don't have a proper definition of how God loves you, it's going to lead to a misguided demonstration of your love for God. You want to demonstrate a a right love for God? You want to you demonstrate a right behavior, a right heart toward God? It all starts with a right definition of God's love. And a new covenant understanding of God's love is imperative to truly deeply understand, be able to experience, and to be able to enjoy God's deep love for you. If you fail to understand how God loves you, you will fail to love God properly and that's why a proper understanding of the new covenant is so vital so what am i hoping this series will allow us to do kind of as a takeaway here's what i'm hoping i'm hoping that it'll allow us to unashamedly unashamedly live in his unconditional love that that's my heart for this series that you'd be able to unashamedly live in his unconditional love so how are you doing at experiencing god's unconditional love that is yours, not on your own merit. Your goodness is as filthy rags, the Bible declares. In you, that is in your flesh, dwelleth no good thing. But in Christ, you are perfect. In Christ, you are holy. And in Christ, you have been made righteous. Are you truly experiencing God's unconditional love? I'm not, I didn't ask you, do you just know about it? Are you experiencing it? Are you enjoying it? There's a lot of people who come to church and they are not enjoying the love of God. They don't enjoy it. They're not really experiencing it. They're just going through the motions. And one of the reasons we struggle to really enjoy experientially the love of God is because we don't truly understand how he's loved us. Our understanding of his love for us is shallow. And so because of that, our love for God in return also becomes shallow. It doesn't come from the heart. The best we can conjure up is surface, behaviors, action. But we have a hard time seeing our hearts, our values, our motives, our worldviews, our identities changed. Because it is only a deep experiential enjoyment of God's love for you that can change the heart. Are you experiencing and enjoying the deep, deep love of Jesus? I hope this series will make it that much easier 
for you to do exactly that. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.